Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening is a priest in the Roman Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where he is the director of the Respect Life Office, continuing formation for clergy and diaconal formation. Father Schenk was raised Jewish, and he was baptized at 16 years old and was ordained in the, in the evangelical Anglican tradition. A former Anglican minister, Father Schenk is founder with Father Frank Pavone of the National Pro-Life Center on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where he acted as chairman for 20 years. Today, he conducts pro-life ministry in three capital cities, Harrisburg, Annapolis, and Washington, D.C., as well as throughout the country. He and his family came into the Catholic Church in 2004 and uh, has become a kind of a regular at the Institute. We love to have Father Paul here with us, so please welcome him back. Thank you, Thank you. I do very much enjoy uh, coming, and uh, I'm happy to be here in Leesburg now, uh, and I think this is my first time into this territory, and I see the Institute now expanding, pushing outward. I'm impressed by the number of field offices that you have established here. Uh, so you just see the influence of the Institute growing outward. Now, we're going to look tonight at the festivals of Israel. And uh, this is um, always uh, an interesting exploration because um, for most uh, Christians, most Catholics, uh, this is a discovery because these festivals are either unknown or the meaning of them are unknown if their names are known. Now very much has been written about Jesus and Judaism. I can hardly add anything substantial to this tremendous breadth of scholarship. And yet, as I said, it does seem to me that the Jewish identity of Jesus, his mother, his foster father, his cousins, indeed the whole Holy Family, including St. John the Baptist, the apostles, the first Christians, and bishops, is underappreciated, perhaps even unknown to many if not most Christians. For example, it is mostly unknown that the earliest text of the New Testament is Hebrew-Aramaic rather than Greek or Latin. The early church historian Eusebius 
attests that St. Matthew, named after the Jewish priest Matateyahu, the hero of Hanukkah, composed, and I'm quoting Eusebius, composed his gospel in Hebrew and others translated it as they were able. The earliest known text of the liturgy of the Eucharist is a Hebrew-Aramaic fragment discovered near the Dura Europis synagogue site in Syria. So the earliest mass that we possess is in Hebrew, or actually Syriac Aramaic, a cousin to Hebrew and the language of the earliest Christians. St. Peter, or Kepha, is a star not only in the New Testament, but in the Talmud, where he is lionized for suffering voluntary heresy in order to keep Jews from being led astray. This is what's told in the Talmud. All the bishops of the See of Jerusalem for 300 plus years were from the circumcision. That is, they were Jews. The Gospel of John, long derided as the most anti-Semitic of the canonical Gospels, is actually the most Jewish structured around Jesus' observances of the Jewish feasts. So there. I was in a restaurant in Birmingham, Alabama. I was there for some EWTN event, which is really just an excuse for a party. And uh, we were out eating late, and uh, we were having a robust theological discussion at the table, about eight of us, on all these matters, Jewish and Eastern and Western and Latin and Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. And our server, who was a woman in her mid-40s, kept coming by and, and stalling near the table. And finally she came over and leaned in and she said, I'm sorry, I couldn't help it, but I've been listening to your conversation. And she said that either her father was Jewish and her mother was Catholic, or her mother was Jewish and her father was Catholic. I can't remember the mixture. And uh, she said, I don't know what to believe. I don't know which one to choose. And I said, but you don't have to choose. She looked confused and I said, why you can be Jewish Catholic or Catholic Jewish, however you wish. And she said, really? I said, my goodness, think of it. I said, our Lord Jesus, Jewish. Our Blessed Mother, Jewish Mother. And uh, the apostles, all Jews. St. Peter, the first pope, Jewish. I said, just think of it now. I said, 
How could you ever launch an enterprise the size and complexity of the Catholic Church and not have a Yiddish cuff at the head? <laughs> and she smiled. She thought that was, that, was, that was liberating to her. She didn't have to choose one or the other. Any culture, especially those shaped by the Judeo-Christian traditions, are shaped and defined by their concept of time. After all, life is lived, at least on this plane, in time. My Jewish father used to say, time is the only unrenewable resource we have. Use it well. As Catholics, we are quite aware of time. As I prepared to enter into full communion in the church, to become a Catholic and then to be ordained a priest, I tried to become an expert, which my father used to define as a former drip under pressure. And I tried to become an expert in all things Catholic, until I realized there was no way I'd ever learn anything there is to know about every saint's feast day. Father, that's not the way we do it here, you know? Let me show you the way, way we do it. Still, we are very aware of times, seasons, days, and feasts. The Catholic year is marked by seasons and festivals, especially the High Holy Days. Advent, Christmas now, Lent and Easter. What many or most Catholics are unaware of is that these seasons correlate to the ancient Jewish observances and rely on the Jewish definition of a year, of a season, of a day. As well, the highest solemnities parallel the biblical Israelite feasts under consideration tonight. So we're going to look tonight at Jesus and the gospel and the feasts of Israel. The gospel, especially messianic prophecies, rely on the calendar feasts of Israel for their meaning and fulfillment. Now this may take you by some surprise, but you'll soon recognize gospel phrases such as John 2.23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, this of course speaking of our Lord, when they saw the signs which he did in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Acts 20, 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost, Shavuot. We're going to talk about that in a bit. The Hebrew name is Shavuot. And then there is John 10, 22. It was the feast of the dedication at Jerusalem. This is in Hebrew, Hanukkah. 
and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. We're not going to talk about Hanukkah tonight, except I want to tell you uh, about growing up as a child. The Maccabees were our heroes. I remember as a young boy in school when Egypt invaded Israel. We were filled with patriotic fervor. We were ready to go and, and fight for Eretz Israel. And this was an opportunity to be like the Maccabees because we had grown up with these Maccabee boys as our, our heroes. I like to surprise Catholics by telling Catholics that the only Bible that tells the story of Hanukkah is the Catholic Bible. Hanukkah is not mentioned in the Jewish Bible. Only the Catholic Bible tells the story of Hanukkah. So here I was growing up as a young Jewish boy with the Maccabees as, as models, as, as heroes, like superheroes. Judah Maccabee was a Jewish superhero. And then when I become a Catholic, I, I find that the Maccabees were actually Catholics. Why is that? Because the book of Maccabees is, is in our canon, our Catholic canon, but not in the Jewish canon or in the Protestant Old Testament. So here, uh, it was the feast of Hanukkah and Jesus is in the temple celebrating Hanukkah. The Blessed Mother, also celebrated Shavuot, or Pentecost, in the upper room. Now we have seven feasts to consider tonight, so we best get to them. First of all, Pesach, or Passover. Now this, I think, is the, pro the progress of the year. Followed by Chag Hamatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, by the time of the New Testament, they are one holy day. Uh, they are one observance, but they are in two distinct parts. The Pesach followed by the Unleavened Bread, the Passover and the Unleavened Bread. The Bikurim, or the offering of the first fruits, and then Shavuot, uh, which actually translates to weeks, the Feast of Weeks, which we call Pentecost after the Greek. And then Rosh Hashanah, which literally means the head of the year, the Feast of Trumpets, but this is not what you're thinking. The shofar is the ram's horn. Nothing like what's comes to mind when we say trumpet. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the highest and holiest day in the Jewish calendar, and then finally Sukkot, the Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, if you will. Now these are the seven feasts of Israel that are commanded to be observed in the book of Vayikra, Leviticus, uh, in the Torah, chapter 23. This is where we have the 
list of these seven feasts. And seven you know, Shva in Hebrew, Shva, Shabbat, Vet and Bet, V and B in Hebrew are the same letter, just depends on where they appear in the word. So Shva is seven, Shabbat is what? Shabbat, when, when you say, uh, well in Ashkenazi you say good Shabbos, but do you know? Sabbath, yes, Sabbath. So Shva, Shabbat, it is as if these feasts, when all combined, become the great Sabbath, the great seven. And seven is a continuously recurring, very important number. The number, it is said, of completion. So we have these seven feasts, and these are the seven we're going to consider. Hanukkah, while it is a very fun holiday, my father used to dress up as Hanukkah Harry, and uh, you know, pass out gifts for eight days. Imagine how difficult it was for me to contract that into one single gift-giving extravaganza instead of getting something every day for eight days. But it's a minor holiday, an important one, but still, still minor. Now, first, an introduction to the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar is not based on Earth's revolutions around the sun as the Roman calendar is. Instead, the Jewish calendar is made up of moon cycles, each month beginning with the time of the new moon, or Rosh Chodesh, Rosh Chodesh, the first or head of the moon. Jewish holy days fall each year on different dates according to the common Christian calendar, which we use today, but on the same date according to the Jewish calendar. So when people see that the high holy days keep moving, they're like a moving target, they think Jews are being too clever. Uh, but we're working on two entirely different calendars, one tied to the moon, the other tied principally to the sun, though there are exceptions to that. So generally speaking, the Jewish festivals fall into the same season each year. Now, because it's a modified lunar calendar, the Jewish calendar is often in need of uh, adjustment to match the solar year. And so, uh, just as the secular calendar is adjusted once in uh, four years by adding the additional day for leap year, the Jewish calendar adds an additional month every third or fourth year. The early Romans attempted to synchronize a solar calendar with the first crescent moon following a new moon, uh, resulting in some months of 29 days and some of more, which of course uh, we still retain to a large degree. And this attempted synthesis of solar and lunar months and seasons persists in the church's calendar today. Now, I like to say that there is no one on the planet busier than a Catholic Jew with an impossible number of seasons, feasts, festivals, memorials, and holy days. They're never ending. 
Now, you are probably somewhat familiar with the Jewish holidays that I've already mentioned, Hanukkah, Pesach, Passover, Yom Kippur, perhaps Purim, but not the ninth of Av and Lag Ba'omer. Never heard of those, have you? You don't want to know the ninth of Av. Don't get me started with the ninth of Av. But there are many other Jewish holidays still very important to the core of the community, but these are the seven that were commanded by the Lord. So you'll be relieved to know that we will only focus on these seven biblical feasts tonight. It's these feasts that follow the contours of the seasons. They define the covenant with Israel and they presage the coming of the Messiah. It is these feasts that are fulfilled in the gospel and relied upon in the New Testament. So <clears throat> these are just the 12 Hebrew months. I thought you'd be interested in hearing about them, but I've placed the um, holy days, uh, the festivals within those months. So we have the 14th of Nisan, Nisan being the first month in the religious year. There's a religious year and there is a civil year, but never mind. We don't need to go into that detail, but the Nisan is the first in the religious cycle. And uh, on the 14th of Nisan is the Pesach, the Passover. And that is the first night of Passover when the Seder meal is most often observed. How many have been to a Seder? Many. Very good. So you're already quite familiar with this. Did you know that there is not one but two first nights of Passover? Did you know that? You didn't know that. Jews would not stand for one first night. There are two first nights of Passover. And why? We don't know. But there has been some intelligent speculation. One is that in the period of the New Testament, the Gospels which we read, there was a controversy in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And it was between the Sadducees, the Zadukim, the righteous ones. Zadukim, the righteous ones. It comes over to us through the Greek as Sadducee, but they were... Zadokim, and uh, the Pharisees, Parusim, Parusim, the separated ones. These were the descendants of the Maccabees. And uh, they were in a controversy over the control of the temple. The Zadokim, the Sadducees, were the elite. They were the educated, they were the wealthy, they were the connected, they were the uh, politically influential and they were in league with Rome. Caiaphas was a Sadducee, and uh, there was a struggle over the control of the temple. Who would control the temple? The Pharisees, the Perusim, were the religious to the Amharits, the common people, the, the people of the earth. So the Pharisees uh, were considered to be lower uh, in the scale, and uh, there was a controversy over who would control 
the temple. The Talmud actually despises the high priest of the temple and instructs uh, good Jews when they see the high priest coming, move to the other side of the road because you don't want to get polluted by the high priest. So see, bishops don't have anything over the high priest. Uh, they were despised. Um, they were mocked. The Talmud says that many of them didn't even speak Hebrew, but uh, we're not sure whether that's accurate or not. So there was a controversy over the calendar of the temple. And the temple was the authority that established the dates for the observances of the holy days, including, of course, the first of the year, which is Pesach, Passover. And this was very important because it would be the temple that would determine when the Passover lambs were sacrificed in the courtyard of the temple. I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. But Exodus chapter 12 says that you're to sacrifice the lamb at your home. Uh, but by the time of the New Testament, this had become the purview of the priesthood in the temple, and the lambs were brought to the temple court, and they were slaughtered there. The blood was collected and spattered at the temple, but not at the homes. And this was well established by the time of the New Testament. So the question would be, who would set the date for the sacrifice of the Passover lambs? And the Sadducees, who were in control of the temple at the time because they had Rome's backing, they said it would be on Friday afternoon. And so the Pharisees said, if your lambs are sacrificed on Friday, ours are on Thursday. That's it. So the Sadducees then, with Rome's backing, imposed a law no sacrifices of lambs outside the temple precincts. So there would be no lambs for the people that the Pharisees were with. So the Pharisees said, fine, no lamb, the matzah will replace the lamb. So the bread became the lamb the matzah bread. And we think that this is the origin of the two nights, first nights of Passover, because to this day, no Jews sacrifice lambs on the Passover. Now, notwithstanding what happened in Buffalo, New York, when I was a young minister, because we had a lovely sponsor who said, I want to put on the best Seder for our church that's ever been put on. And I, wonderful, I want it in a hall, I'm going to pay for everything, we'll have it catered, there, no one will have to volunteer, everybody will be seated with families, we'll have 500, 600 people, and wonderful, wonderful, until they decided to bring out the sacrificed lamb. It didn't occur to me to tell her, we don't cut off lamb's heads on Passover Eve anymore. <laughs> so when the time was right, we'd been through the Seder ritual, 
now it was dinner time and into the middle of the room all the children mixed company women and children and out comes the beheaded lamb with the head next to it all the children start screaming and crying i i'm in slow motion oh no I'm trying to get to the, as this is being wheeled out into the middle of the room and I can't get to it, we ask everybody to close their eyes. <laughs> this hasn't been done in 2,000 years. Uh, and it hasn't been done since. Uh, so, and notwithstanding what happened in Buffalo, there's no sacrificed lambs. Uh, instead, what is the centerpiece of the Passover Seder? This you already know. It's the matzah. So this is why we believe that this is the origin of the two first nights of Passover, this controversy between the Sadducees and the Pharisees in the time of the New Testament. Now, as I said, Passover takes place on the 14th, month, uh, on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, and it recalls the deliverance of Israel from exile and enslavement in Egypt. We find this in the 12th chapter of Exodus. And this is the language of promise and protection and inheritance. It is indeed the great hope of Israel. Recalling this Passover from Egyptian slavery and suffering to the promised land. We have an exhortation in Peter's first letter in the New Testament, which relies on the Old Testament prophecies, uh, which reflects this very theme, the movement from enslavement to fulfillment and promise. And this movement is important. In the letters of Aristobulus, Hellenistic Jewish writings that were preserved by the early church historian Eusebius, the Passover is called the Feast of Crossings. Diabeterion is an unusual word, a Greek word, used again with much greater emphasis by Philo of Alexandria, the great Hellenistic Jewish Greek philosopher and theologian. He calls the Passover the diabesis, or passage. From Philo, it is an allegory of the passage of the human soul from bondage to the passions to freedom from them. And Peter comments on this in a similar way in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. Now, Philo, which is the dominant Jewish interpretation at New Testament times, is actually a Greek interpretation. It is a Jewish Greek interpretation but it is nevertheless Greek as well. And Philo takes his interpretation of the Passover from the etymology of the Hebrew word or name Pesach, which he transliterates in Greek as Pascha, probably from the Aramaic term Pescha, which he understands as a transfer or a crossing over. And he observes that the distinguishing characteristic of the Passover is that all the people, men, women, and children, act as priests in the Passover sacrifice. And they do this, according to Philo, in a state of ritual purity, made so by the shedding of the blood, which is shed as a memorial and a thanksgiving. Eucharistia.
So you see this idea of deliverance from slavery to passions and ritual purity and common priesthood and the cleansing of the blood begins to develop in the New Testament. All these resonate with our understanding of the Eucharist. Yes? This is all important background coming from the Passover itself. And the Passover story, the actual liturgy of the Passover is called the Haggadah. It's the story, the tale, with the admonition to believers who are aliens and exiles and slaves. The Paschal theme is essential to understanding the role of Christ's sacrifice, the movement from slavery to passion, which separates us from God, to freedom from sin, which begins at baptism, the cleansing, and then continues throughout the sacramental life, this is the theme of the Passover, from suffering and slavery far from the land of promise to true freedom and righteousness and the hope of the eternal land. And then there is the cleansing and the healing which comes through the blood, the shedding of blood. Now, as I said, the Passover is married to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Hag Hamatzot. In order to see the connection between the Passover and the Eucharist, it is important to begin with this Jewish concept of Zachor. Zachor is a very important concept, memorial or memory. You know it in the name Zechariah, Zechariah, Zachor, memory. God remembers. This idea is foundational to Jewish theology, beginning in the Torah, the books of Moses, where the, at Exodus 13.3 is the command to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Zachor et chadza asher yitzatam mimitzrayim. And Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt. The remembrance of the liberation from Egyptian slavery is the whole premise of the Passover, which bears marks of timelessness being called in Exodus 12 to the beginning of months and leads to an elaborate rehearsal and recitation. Passover was a sign and an ordinance and the centerpiece of that signal is the unleavened bread, the matzah. This matzah itself is the memorial, the memory, the remembrance. It was the matzah which was the sign and symbol to the Jewish people that they would be released from this bondage and that the hope would be realized. In respect, especially to Passover, Zachor is more than remembrance. It is perhaps best understood as recollection or even better, reenactment. It is precisely this idea of real-time memorial that is the meaning of the words of Jesus in the institution of the Eucharist at Luke 22:19, And we know this was a Passover Seder. He took the bread, the matzah, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Passover consisted of four cups of wine, which recall the blood of the sacrificial lamb, and the last cup is deemed the cup of redemption, 
or salvation. And here we see that at the Last Supper, Jesus orders the same vivid rehearsal when he elevates the matzah and, of course, in the Eucharist, in the Eucharistic liturgy, the priest intones the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Following the Passover, the Pesach, is the Bikurim, the first fruits. This is found in the Old Testament at Leviticus 23.10. The day after the Sabbath during the week of unleavened bread, the Israelites are to take the ripening grain and wave it before God as a peace offering. Zevach Shlomim. And the grain represents the beginning of the harvest. This would be the very holy days that Jesus would rise from the dead. It represents the firstborn risen from the dead, the beginning of the harvest of the Old Testament, and the advent of the kingdom of God. Bikhorim points to the Messiah's resurrection as the first fruits of righteousness. St. Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits from the dead, the Bikurim. So this has a specific reference to Christ, to the Messiah. Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost is the church's celebration of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the blessed third person of the Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force. He enjoys the same qualities as Father God and our Savior Christ. But Pentecost is more. It is also the Old Testament holy day of Shavuot, or weeks, when the spring harvest has been offered to God, and this was the libation offering in the Holy Temple, when clean water was brought in a grand procession through the courtyard, up the grand staircase, and into the temple itself. And then that clean water was poured into a massive uh, container as a libation offering before the Lord. The Shavuot is also smicha Torah, the rejoicing over the law. When God gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites on Mount Sinai, Shavuot is the celebration, the memorial, the reenactment of the giving of the law, the Torah, to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. And for that reason, the court of the temple and the temple itself was lit up with lamps. Uh, because Torah, to or or Torah, which we usually translate as law. No, it's an awful translation. Or is the word for light, brightness. 
and Torah is the light ahead. And so the temple and its courts and precincts were all lit so that they could be seen for miles uh, at nightfall during Smicha Torah, which is also Shavuot. So a lot is going on here. The spirit, the fruits, the water, and the commandments, all wrapped up in one. It reminds me of the Mass in which I was confirmed and entered into full communion in the church. So I had my first penance, I had, uh, my, uh, I had my confirmation, my wife and I had our marriage convalidated, I received my first Eucharist, and uh, I was uh, inducted into the confraternity of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and invested with the scapular all in the same Mass. It was like a Mount Vesuvius of graces. I still bask in it. Uh, to this day. And uh, this was one of those holy days with multiple elements to it. The ancient Jewish tradition is that God offered his commandments to all of the peoples of the world in each of their languages, but only the people of Israel said, everything the Lord has said we will do. Exodus 19.3, I think it is. So he gave them his law in Hebrew. Now, the Acts of the Apostles tells us that on Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues. This is on the day of Pentecost. As the Spirit enabled them to proclaim, now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven staying in Jerusalem. At this sound, they gathered in a large crowd, but they were confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. You remember this on Pentecost? The speaking in other tongues? Why? Why on Shavuot? Why on Pentecost? Because in the remembrance, the memorial of the giving of the Torah to Moses and Moses to the people on Sinai, the Talmud uh, tradition tells us that when God gave the commandments to Moses, he spoke in all the 70 languages of the earth simultaneously. So we have a repeat of Sinai on Pentecost, on Shavuot, because this is smicha Torah, this is the memorial, the remembrance, the rehearsal of the giving of the Torah on Sinai. Now language is the chief form of communication between us. It's how we reveal ourselves to each other, and it is how God reveals himself to us. In fact, in the letter to the Hebrews, which is no letter at all, it's actually, we think, a homily, a lecture, if you will, Imagine a homily as long as the book of Hebrews today. You know how many people would be walking out before communion? So in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, the writer says this, In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us in or by a son, but not in the Greek. The Greek, the original Greek here does not have the 
rather, if we were to translate it literally, has God has spoken in Son. He has spoken to us in Son, as we would say in French or in Spanish or in Greek or in Hebrew. So Christ is himself the language of God. And this comes across in both the churches and in the Jewish observance of Shavuot, Smicha Torah, the reenactment of the giving of the law, the light forward on Sinai. Next is Rosh Hashanah. In the New Testament, the trumpet is symbolic in several ways. God's judgment against evil is announced by a trumpet or a shofar. A sign of the meeting of the Church of Christ with the Lord in Matthew 24, 31. The second coming of Christ is announced with a trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 1 Corinthians 15. Since God has chosen the big events that shape Christianity and the celebration of Israel, it's quite possible that uh, the return will be fulfilled in a future celebration of trumpets. As the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, uh, the head of the year, uh, was announced by the blowing of the shofar. And this is the uh, sound which will be heard according to St. Paul when Christ returns. There was a parapet uh, at the top of the temple called the place of the blowing of the shofar, of the trumpets. And this was a corner of the temple in which very possibly you'll remember that in Matthew's Gospel, Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple and shows him the whole city. This parapet was designed so that the blowing of the shofar could be heard across the entire city. And perhaps this was the very corner that the confrontation between Jesus and the devil took place. When the Messiah appears in the heavens, Jewish tradition says he will be preceded by the blowing of the trumpets. And St. Paul writes about this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and 1 Corinthians 15.52. The next, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Once a year on Yom Kippur, this comes from the Hebrew word kafar, which means covering. The high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial bull onto the gold face plate called the mercy seat. And this was symbolic of the life of the people being redeemed or exchanged back from the slavery of sin to God. Today we translate kafar as atonement, at one mint. This was an English word that was created for the Bible, at one mint, atonement that reconciles man and God. The Old Testament book of Leviticus puts this into context in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of the life. If there is one verse in the entire Old Testament that explains the gospel, the Eucharist, salvation, 
It is this verse, Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of the life. The faceplate, or the covering, had two aspects. It covered the law, the Ten Commandments, within the Ark of the Covenant. You have the Ark of the Covenant, and above the Ark of the Covenant is the gold faceplate. Uh, this is called the uh, kafar. This is the covering. And actually, we call it the kafarot. It's always in the plural, the coverings. And then within the Ark of the Covenant are the tablets of the law, Aaron's rod, and the manna are inside. And on top is this gold faceplate. So it covered the law with its penalties, and it covered the sins. And when the blood of the goats or the bulls, the sacrifices was splattered, the sin was covered by a substitute sacrifice. Now, as I said, today we call that faceplate the mercy seat, which is actually an interpretation and not a translation. This term literally comes from an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. They used the word ilasterion, which uh, then came over to the Latin as propitiatory. The word propitiatory means a place where God shows his favor or grace. In Exodus 25, 22, God made a very important promise about his mercy seat. He said to Moses, there I will meet with you. And we should understand the context, that God had expelled the first humans from paradise after their sinful rebellion. He stationed two uh, cheruvim, cherubim, at the gateway to prevent them from ever returning. And now God tells Moses that he will dwell with his people again between the two cheruvim, the two cherubim, which are on the ends of the Ark of the Covenant, and the and they will cross into communion with him through the blood spattered on the mercy seat. It was only in the place of mercy covered by the blood that God would meet with his people. This was the significance of the mercy seat. It was a place of sacrifice. On the altar, blood was spattered and a life was offered in substitution for the sinner. It was also a place of atonement the place where man and God were made one. In the very place where sin was revealed by the law, it was then covered by the sacrifice. Most of all, the mercy seat was the place of God's personal presence. The presence of God, his love, his mercy, his purity, his power, his healing, all rested between the cherubim on the mercy seat. And then St. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, it's Romans chapter 3 rather, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, this is verse 25 of Romans 3, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. In the Hebrew New Testament, this is phrased, God who displayed 
his face as a mercy seat. So the mercy seat becomes in the New Testament the face of Christ himself, spattered with blood, now the route to reconciliation and salvation. Finally, the last one, and here we are at the last one, the last of the seven is Sukkot, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. God commanded Israel to remember their ancestors who had wandered through the desert for 40 years, and he wanted every generation to realize their dependence on him for their welfare. The Jews were commanded by God to celebrate this festival of Sukkot or Tabernacles with great joy in Leviticus 23:40, By the time of Jesus, the Israelites had developed a special ceremony that presented another libation, the pouring of water, and this symbolized prayer to God and rain, the promise of rain for the coming of year. And this later prayer became a prayer to send the Messiah to save his people and give them spiritual refreshment. And Jesus explained that he was that living libation that they were seeking. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Sukkot, in John 7, 37 and 38, the feast referred to here is Sukkot. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and in a loud voice said, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will be flowing out of him. So the festival is also the harbinger of the coming of the eternal kingdom of God, where we will live in the tent of the Lord forever. And many scholars believe that this feast day points to the Lord's promise that he will once again tabernacle with his people when he returns to reign over the world. And we can see in this promise the dwelling of the Lord in the Eucharist, inhabiting all the tabernacles of the world. When St. Jerome determined to translate the Bible into the vernacular in order to make it accessible to the universal church, he asked Pope Damasus for permission to go to the Holy Land, to Eretz Yisrael, to Bethlehem, to the city of King David, to study the original languages before composing the great Vulgata, the Vulgate. He enlisted a rabbi to teach him Hebrew, a Jewish Christian to teach him Aramaic, and a Greek bishop to teach him Septuagintal Jewish Greek. This is a distinction, Jewish Greek, not just ordinary Greek, but Jewish Greek. St. Jerome became then a kind of honorary bar mitzvah bocher, following the steps of Ezra, the first translator and interpreter of the, uh, an interpreter of the Bible. And in this way, it was St. Jerome who would first introduce the biblical feasts of Israel to the Catholic Church. In this very brief overview of the seven feasts of Israel, which define the ancient biblical calendar and order the seasons, months, and years, toward the divine, we see the outline, the precursor of the gospel and the fulfillment in Jesus as he completes the promise of the feasts, observing them perfectly. 
So we get a much greater appreciation of the long and complex history of the gospel literally written into the rhythms of the planet throughout the course of time and hopefully understand in a greater way the mysteries of Habisurah HaMashiach Yeshua, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you, Father. I, uh, I really enjoyed the last time you, you gave this talk for us about four years ago. I think this one was even better. So thank you very much for a wonderful presentation. Uh, all right, question and answer. Uh, if you look at the, uh, at the counts of the, of the Passover in the Gospels, some experts have pointed out that the dates don't jive, semicolon. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so uh, some have suggested that Jesus was using the calendar of the Essenes, which is earlier than the, the Maccabees calendar. There are many uh, theories about the discrepancies in the calendar. Um, in the New Testament and particularly in the Gospel of John. Um, I have no particular school of thought of my own, so I just know what the suggestions are. As far as the Essenes are concerned, I've always been intrigued by them. The, the preponderance of New Testament scholarship makes a very firm wall of demarcation between the Essenes and the early Christians. I'm not so sure. I think there's more work to be done there. So it's an interesting suggestion and not one that I've spent any time reading about. So I wouldn't have um, too much of, uh, uh, to say about that specific explanation. I had a friend of mine who was a street preacher in, um, in uh, the French Quarter of New Orleans. And uh, his name was Reverend Luke Robinson. And he, Luke, no, Luke Robson, yeah, Robinson. And, uh, and I've got several people who are of similar names. So he was telling me one time, he said he was in the grocery store and there were two women ahead of him in the checkout and uh, they were talking to each other about all the contradictions in the Bible and how they just couldn't believe the Bible because it was just filled with contradictions. And he said, I leaned in and I said, ladies, he said, I couldn't help but hear your discussion about the, the contradictions in the Bible. He said, the Bible is the word of God. He said, now, he said, you tell me, you just name me one contradiction in the Bible. Just name me one. He said, I'll get down on my hands and knees and I will lick this floor from here to the back of the store. He said, thank God they didn't know any of the contradictions in the Bible. <laughs> John does follow a different timeline. It's a significantly different one. Um, and uh, there are a number of explanations uh, for that. Time was managed quite differently, as we can see with the two first nights of Passover. In 2002, I found myself in Bishkek, which, if you haven't been in Bishkek recently, mm -hmm. is the capital of the Kyrgyz Republic. I'm sure you've been there before. Uh, but it was the one and only time in my life that I celebrated a Seder. Uh, I did so with a mixed marriage family uh, between uh, a Methodist who had basically become a practical agnostic and a Jew a Jewish husband. Uh, a Jewish friend of mine who uh, was working in the same facility 
and uh, the, the Methodist Jewish mixed marriage daughter who was being raised Jewish. And they invited me because they were lovely people and they asked me if I wanted to come. Now, being a Catholic of the smells and bells variety, I was used to solemnity in my ritual. And so I couldn't help but notice that of the continuum of people at the Seder, that the more Jewish they were, the less seriously they seemed to take it. Is this typical, and is there anything that you can generally say about how uh, contemporary Judaism feels about its Seder practices? It's a good question, and it comes up uh, in different ways. Um, because Christians are used to approaching this as the foundation of the liturgy of the Eucharist, they're usually, we're, we're usually conscious of that. So when we see it done in a way which is rather, uh, you know, lack of form and, and uh, solemnity, it surprises us. Um, when in fact there's almost nothing typical of a Seder except that it's too long for Gentiles. Uh, but other than that, that's the only thing that's typical of it. But uh, no, it's very much a, a family meal. And so it has all the spills and the, and the, you know, all the unpredictables of a family meal. So it, it, it takes place in the home and, uh, and the children are all involved in it and it's, it's, it's quite a bit in motion. But I think in that respect, it is less Latin and more Eastern in the sense of being more fluid and, and uh, so forth. That's usually a surprising element. Keep in mind, however, that the modern Seder is quite different from the Seder that our Lord would have celebrated with his disciples, and that was quite different than the Seder which would have been celebrated, let's say, by Joshua. So it changed over the course of time, and it has become much more uh, domestic than it was even in New Testament times, which was something of an extension of the temple, though it was still a home, it was still celebrated. The Seder itself, the meal was in the home. As I say, the sacrifice was in the temple, so it was a mixture there. You had the solemnity of the temple sacrifice, but then you still had the home-based celebration. And I always tell people at a Seder, this is not the Mass. So, you, you know, you don't come with the same disposition as you do to the Mass. Father, you made a number of connections between Catholic uh, practices, sacraments, sacramentals, etc., with the Jewish uh, festivals. Right now we're celebrating the uh, Jubilee. Jubilee year. Mm -hmm. Could you comment on the, uh, the theory and practice of the Jubilee in, in Jewish history? And yes, yes. Mm -hmm. The Jubilee year in the um, Tanakh, the Old Testament, it was uh, seven years and 50 years Jubilees were celebrated with the release of, of captives uh, who were taken as spoils of war, release of uh, slaves were allowed to go free, debts were relieved, were, were uh, dismissed, and it usually coincided with some memorial, some great remembrance. So while Jubilee years are no longer utilized in Judaism, the church has definitely inherited the Jubilee celebration from from the uh, Old Testament. Absolutely. 
We also have uh, on our website now two hours on the Jubilee year study that I did. I don't usually recommend my own talks, but it was excellent. just good. so you might want to take a look at that where we spent most of our time in the good, Old good. Testament. I once read a theory, I don't know what you think about it, that the whole Gospel of Mark was based on the Jewish liturgical year, that Mark, as a disciple of Peter, followed him, and each piece that he wrote was Peter's sort of homily, maybe, uh, associated with a Jewish feast. Is that a reasonable theory, do you think? Oh, yes, it's quite, quite reasonable. Mark, we're told, is the preaching of Peter, and Mark is quite Aramaic in its contours, its, its shape. As far as the liturgical year is concerned, I'd have to pay a little more careful attention to that, but the suggestion is certainly a valid one, to be sure. Father, there's been some controversy that's come out from Rome recently from the Ecumenical Commission regarding uh, two-covenant theory that, that um, the Old Covenant is still in place in a, in a, as they would call it, a valid avenue for salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Um, can you speak on that uh, versus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one shall come to the Father but through me. The two-covenant theory is that the covenant through Moses with the Jewish people remains in place, intact, and is itself salvific, while the covenant through Christ is for the rest of peoples, for the nations, so to speak. So uh, division between the Jews who remain in relationship with God through Moses and the Gentiles come through Christ. Uh, this is this is this theory has been put forth in different ways over the course of time, but it is not commensurate with the teachings of the church. What the church does say is that the Jewish people or any people can find the path to salvation through Christ, even if due to ignorance not their own, they don't understand him as such. There is only one covenant of salvation, and that comes through Christ. But one may not acknowledge or be necessarily knowledgeable of Christ's role in that salvation. But nevertheless, one must come through Christ, even if he is not acknowledged as such. And of course, this is behind some of the, some of the catechism on the Muslim people, the Jewish people, and even others who uh, may not see the full light of the truth. But this has been, if I could say, a convenient way to allay the fears of the Jewish people that they are expected to convert and become Christians. So, and of course, the church has adjusted its approach and language in this respect to recognize the patrimony of the Jewish people and even a very, very good passage of scripture to look at in this regard that I think is quite easy to understand is Romans chapter nine and chapter 10 and 11. These three chapters of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, nine, 10, 11, addresses this very question and uh, does so I think in a way that if you let it speak plainly to you, I think you can understand. Uh, Father, I've been uh, led to believe that the Ark of the Covenant had uh, mana in it. Yes, and, and it did at one point. The rod of Aaron and uh, golden lampstand. Nothing was said about uh, 
a mercy seat. The mercy seat is above the ark, not within it. What's in it is the tablets, the manna, and Aaron's staff. That's within it. But the mercy seat, the kaparot, is on top. So what you have is you have the acacia wood box, and then within those articles on top is the golden faceplate, and then above that, the cheruvim, the cherubim. Okay, and that's the image of the Ark of the Covenant. Thank you very much, Father Paul. All right, thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. And let, let me say what joy um, in my heart uh, that I get from saying to Deacon Mazel Tov on your coming ordination to the Holy Priesthood. God bless you. Father, Father Paul, could you please give us a blessing? All right, so may I ask you to rise. The Lord be with you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.